So in mid-October of 2022, so this year, President of Tajikistan, Emil Mali Rahman, gave a speech at a Central Asia-Russia summit, which kind of sounded like he was challenging Putin and Russia's colonial attitude towards Central Asia. He blamed the collapse of the Soviet Union on Moscow's failure to properly consider the interests of the, quote, small republics, implying that Russia is making the same mistakes again. But was this a decolonial outburst from the president of Tajikistan? We'll delve into that today. It is interesting, though, that like a president saying something that I don't know, everyone has kind of already agreed on, like Moscow's mismanagement of the outer republics, the Soviet Union's the who was that Armenian thinker that said that if the, when the Soviet Union collapses, it will be because of the it will be because of the independence movements of the of the, of the nationalities. Do you remember who that was? No, I don't. I don't. But like, you know retweet man right there was someone who said that but it's kind of funny to hear that like i don't know what is it a full 30 years later and everyone's like wow are we getting decolonial <laughs> i know right and you know we're doing this topic because after more than a century of russian colonial rule central asians seem to begin questioning their identity and i'm seeing this on twitter not that twitter is representative of reality but this discourse was not there previously and it is becoming a little more mainstream where it practically didn't exist previously at all outside of academia, and even in academia, was exceedingly rare and obscure. And this thinking is in large part accelerated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I want to pause for a second for our listeners and note that in case you haven't noticed this already based on, you know, our other first few episodes, we are considering, you know, Russia's relationship to these republics to be colonial now. But we also consider um, Russia's relationship to these republics and to these countries, colonial, even under the Soviet Union. A large part of what we talk about is discussing the Soviet Union as an imperial project, um, which is obviously not all it was, but it is important to note that because it's something that I feel like is a little bit whitewashed among the American left in particular. I don't know if you agree with that. Kaya, absolutely. But, um, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's yeah. like this so I just weird... to note that. Yeah. Thank you, Anna, for that. And it's this weird kind of you know, it's it's really like buying into Soviet propaganda about like nationalities policy and how national culture was said to have flourished under the Soviet Union, right? The, like so much of the federal, um, yeah, not federal budget, but the 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 Soviet budget was was allocated for kind of cultural revival, language preservation, etc. Whereas at the same time, um, you know, everyone was forced to speak Russian, and it, p- particularly in um, some parts of the Soviet Union, language was suppressed more than in other places. And, and we'll we'll delve into that a little bit. Yeah. And there was definitely I mean, this is a much bigger and different discussion for another day. But there there is so much nuance in that conversation of what culture was preserved, what sorts of uh, what what sorts of cultural projects that money went to. So that's something we can definitely talk about. But we are you know, we're coming at that from this perspective. So I'm glad I'm glad you called it. I'm glad you called it colonization right from the get go. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> Buckle up. You know, in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I think has spurred very real organic debates around decoloniz- decolonization in the former Soviet context. And I think I was actually, you know, was writing the script on a I think the war in Ukraine or Russia's invasion of Ukraine might be like kind of one of the reasons we started this podcast. I don't think we've like acknowledged that, you know, kind of in in that way, like obviously, but I I, I feel like it might be. Yeah, this podcast, definitely we start we had the idea beforehand um, and we were working on it, you know, significantly beforehand as well. But I think 
that invasion made it clear why that why this was so necessary um and also why these conversations it is a good thing that they were happening in ukraine before you know russia's war of aggression and that they should be happening in other places as well um because i think that has a lot to do with why ukrainians are able to organize so effectively to advocate for themselves um and i'm glad to see them doing it and i want to see um i want to see us doing it more and i would like to see other you know countries in Eurasia having these conversations in a more robust fashion as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think seeing the blatantly imperial nature of the aggression against Ukraine has caused a lot of soul searching for all people who've been colonized or, you know, impacted by Russia. Yes. Yes. Um, and even former Soviet nations who've been nominally independent for 30 plus years, right? I think perhaps audiences who are less familiar with the context might be surprised by this. Like, you guys have been independent for more than 30 years. Like, what what decolonization are you talking about? Like, you guys are independent. Yeah, exactly. Um, but back to Tajikistan and Rahman's speech, there's a video of it. And um, I've, I've got it linked in the script. Um, in the video, Rahman is directly addressing Putin, who's sitting across from him. He says... Oh, shit. Yeah. He says, and I've translated this quote, quote, Then, as now, there was no attention to smaller republics, small peoples. They didn't provide assistance or support for development, end quote. I just want to mention, <coughs> excuse me, the concept of small nations and, and small republics is it's a Soviet one that denotes minorities and it's super problematic. It's obviously a colonial term. So I think even if this was a decolonial speech by Ramon, the terminology is, you know, pretty whack. To be fair, I think that, you know, in recording this, I noticed that even we use a lot of these terms and it's very difficult, I think, in part because, you know, the vocabulary of decolonization was developed rightfully so to describe actual former colonies like, you know, um, India, a lot of African republics that went through a, a, a very specific period of decolonization. Mm -hmm. But now as like we're sort of and other places are using that vocabulary to describe experience their own experiences. One of the reasons this conversation is important because we probably should develop our own vocabulary about this. So, you know, hopefully over the course of creating this and over the course of these conversations happening, we'll get some better terms than even the ones that we've been using. But I'm very I'm shocked that he said this straight to Putin. Yeah. I mean, that's actually like that's huge. Mm -hmm. um, so he mentions how rich Tajikistan is in precious metals and how no one cares <laughs> um, and he, how he's seen Russian businessmen come only to exploit. Rahman continues, quote, we want to be respected. We're not beggars. We have a rich country. We've always respected and respect the interests of our main strategic partner. But we want to be respected, too. What are we strangers? He asks. He reminds Putin, huh. yeah. He reminds Putin that Tajiks choose Russia as their main destination for migrant work and not anywhere else. And he emphasizes, quote, there they don't just earn money, they work, end quote. And I think this is where people might be picturing the, the gif of Drake applauding. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So people online kind of took this as this like, you know, bold statement from Tajikistan's leader. It was described as a remarkable outburst by Peter Leonard of Eurasianet. Uh, a Tajik journalist partially based in Dushanbe named Sher Hashimov said on Twitter that the video of Rahman went viral in Kazakhstan, neighboring Kazakhstan, and that people in Kazakhstan were calling him the Tiger of Kazakhstan. This is after they called President of Kazakhstan, Kasim Jomar Tokayev, the Tiger of Kazakhstan for openly refusing to recognize the Donetsk People's Republic, Luhansk People's Republic in Ukraine's Donbass region, according to Hashimov. That's 
an interesting reaction to the words that you're telling me that he actually said. I'm I want to hear more before I, I I say what I'm thinking. But okay, okay, I'm, I'm curious. I, I feel I feel sus. I feel very sus about Ooh, that statement. Interesting. So you you don't think it was the decolonial outburst that people were calling it? I when he says, "What are we strangers?" I get really big like Ruski Mir flashbacks. <laughs> you know. <laughs> So I'm, I, I feel like that's like a, that, you know. Вы что, не братья, что ли? Literally, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> um, so that's an interesting way to phrase it. But I, I think people's reaction is like, it's, it, you know, it, it, it matters because that gives you a sense of what people are looking for, what people are hungry for. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly there is this overall dynamic where countries who have always been treated as junior partners of Moscow understand Russia's collapse of soft power in the world because of the Ukraine invasion. And they know that they've suddenly become a little more indispensable to Russia. The tables are turning a little bit, you know what I mean? Um, but that doesn't necessarily involve decolonization. No, I mean, I, I kind of agree um, because... That like when when you say like what are we strangers? Um, the reason I you know I flash back to Ruski Mir is because it feels a little bit like um, model minority bullshit. Um, where what he's what he's saying seems to be less like we have to fundamentally separate ourselves from this Russian you know imperialist world, and it's more you need to treat us better in this imperialist world. So it's sort of like I don't know. It's like Vilayet advocacy versus independence or freedom advocacy. Vilayet advocacy. That's that's pretty fucking amazing. I'm making amazing. this up. It's, I'm no, making this shit I up. I love it. I love it. Um, Anna, you're actually kind of, you know, what you're saying is aligning with what Central Asian analysts have actually said and how they reacted. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Cool. So this, and this is what we'll kind of go into. So, you know, there was a speech, there was this reaction, and then there was these, you know, people who actually know the context saying, hold on. That's that's not actually what's happening. This isn't decolonization is basically what they said. Um, mm -hmm. So Temur Umarov, uh, he's an Uzbek analyst focused on Central Asian countries' domestic and foreign policies, links the speech to Rahmon's perception of a weaker Russia, and in particular, its inability to defend Tajikistan from threats from Afghanistan. So, oh. yeah, Umarov is saying that former Soviet republics in general have stronger bargaining chips right now. But he argues that Tajikistan is using this moment to get as many concessions as possible. So instead of working to de detangle himself from Moscow, Rahman is actually just trying to get more concessions. He's not challenging the system, uh, as it were. Yeah. Um, and in terms of concessions for Moscow, you know, Umarov pointed out that Russia's made such concessions to Rahman in the past. Russia, for example, labeled the opposition Islamic Renaissance Party as a terrorist organization and in a kind of favor to Rahman. Um, What's the Islamic Renaissance Party? Islamic Renaissance, par Renaissance Party. That's right. It's it's an opposition party. Oh, it's an opposition party. Got it. Got exactly. It. Russia also actively sends back Tajik political activists, even if they've obtained Russian passports. Right. So, you know, by the way, <laughs> Tajikistan has one of the lowest ratings in the world on Freedom House. It scores a zero out of 40 for political rights. Of course. I mean, yeah, that is sort of, it's sort of an, uh, an alliance of dictatorial rulers, right? You're, he's using his leverage and some popular language, it seems, to be able to enforce 
just more oppression on his own people too. Yeah. At least that's the vibe I'm that's, getting. That's clearly their their relationship, you know, how it's been structured in the past doing these kind of favors. Um, I mean, it's interesting. Umarib says these concessions are not enough for Rahman. Rahman feels like he's done a lot to keep Russian influence in Tajikistan, more than neighbors, and that Tajikistan has not diversified ties with other international partners. So he wants dividends now. Because Tajikistan's loyalty to Russia is now a liability, given Russia's isolation and, you know, its failures on the front lines in, in Ukraine. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that is, yeah, well, model minority bullshit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and it also brings to light Russia's changing role as a security guarantor for certain states, right, in the region. Yeah. Tajikistan has taken a hardline stance on the Taliban since it retook control in Afghanistan, even as Tajikistan shares an extensive border with Afghanistan that's mountainous, hard to control, even as Tajikistan's military is considered to be the weakest in the region. So Umar says that it's not that Tajikistan wants to get into a fight with the Taliban. It's that it's taken on this risk to boost popularity at home and abroad. And that the risk is basically worth it because Tajikistan can just rely on Russian troops that man the Tajik-Afghan border um, as a last resort. Oh, but that creates kind of... Now they need more, right? Because as Russia sort of shows its hand in terms of um, its military weakness, they need to be able to ba- they need to be able to basically gar- um, get a backing for their security guarantee or get some actual kind of benefit for their security guarantee. Literally, exactly, because you know, as we've all seen, Russian defense no longer looks as reliable, and Rahman is seriously worried about threats from Afghanistan, especially as Russia is also d- redirecting. Um, a lot of its military resources to Ukraine. It's fascinating to see this like push and pull between uh, authoritarians in the region because they do rely on each other for because they can't rely on their people for political legitimacy. So they rely on each other for legitimacy. And then you get this like very strange universe where it's interesting to see like what sort of issue areas they pull on to um, an- like they choose to they, they choose to anchor themselves in. For example, you know, you see that, I don't know, Putin like went hard on the like, you know, it's like Russia is a conservative country. For some reason, we went straight back to World War II glory with the denazification bullshit. Um, but it, like you see that these political stances are all sort of exist to maintain power, right? Like we are opposed to the Taliban. And then you realize that, oh, this is less about the Taliban and a lot more about like, what is the thing that we have to rely on right now to be able to maintain power where in our own countries and relative to each other too. Yeah. And and one of the basic tenets of that kind of um, regime longevity is, you know, basic security. So, you know, if you border Afghanistan and you haven't recognized the Taliban, unlike your neighbors, I mean, you, you've basically taken up a kind of hostile stance um, and your traditional security guarantor, Russia is just kind of showing, showing its ass as, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and to be fair, I just want to mention that disentangling from Russia as a former Soviet state, even if the political will exists, just isn't that easy for many reasons. But I think security is often the primary one. Gee, I wonder who can relate to that. (laughs) (laughs) So, oh, the dark, dark times, dark times. What a a timeline. Um, It's, you know, obviously still early to predict what the future of Russian Central Asian relations might look like, how they might be structured. But for now, I think dependency on Russia is not going away anytime soon. 
um, unfortunately, uh, it applies to some other people too. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I wonder who you're talking about. <laughs> I have no idea what, what I'm what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, another Twitter user, Zamira Dildorbekova, she's a staff at UCL, uh, University College London, with a PhD in Tajikistan from the University of Exeter, wrote a Twitter thread that aligned with Umarov's ideas that I just mentioned. She's also mm-hmm. saying, no, Rahmon is not standing up to Putin in that speech. Dildor Bekova says he has no desire to achieve more autonomy from Russia and that his demand to be respected has been misinterpreted. She says the speech follows his attempt to assert political dominance in the wake of Tajikistan's aggression in Kyrgyzstan. Just to remind our listeners, Tajikistan attacked Kyrgyzstan in mid-September and also shelled civilian areas well within Kyrgyz borders. And by the way, Anna, we should probably cover the both sidesism in the media on that topic too, on the Tajik uh, attacks on Kyrgyzstan. We mentioned it a little bit briefly um, in our first episode, and we definitely should get to it on this podcast. Um, and it, I was wondering how that would factor into this because uh, it was kind of an enormous thing to have happen. Like this was also a conflict that was, um, I don't want to say not 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 relatively stable, but it was a conflict that exploded at the, in this time as well as Russia sort of in Ukraine. Um, but the way that it was covered was once again so surface level and Russia was so central to the coverage of that that it was more as though, oh, Russia's weak and now these people are fighting again. Um, and so I'm wondering you know, what the how the history of that conflict itself plays into this as well. So we should definitely, definitely get into it later. Yeah. Um, and, and we will do that, um, that <laughs> Western media is both siding is one of my favorite topics ever. Um, I know we're going to be talking a lot about that because it really does. Yeah. Right. But it does, it, it, it plays a huge role in how these countries are perceived and in turn, how they, you know, interact with one another too. Um, because so often a lot of, you know, the posturing of political leaders is done for media. And so the way that the media covers them matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. It has, you know, public opinion has an impact on policy and decision-making. So there's a direct link. Yeah. Uh, back to yeah. Dildor Bekova. So she's basically saying Rahman is not challenging Putin. And in fact, she uses the aggression on Kyrgyzstan to kind of contextualize some other aspect of this, which is that Tajikistan's attacks on Kyrgyzstan could not have happened without Putin's approval. Yes. And that overall... Yes. It would be naive to assume that Rahmon would challenge the very patron that has kept him in power. Yes, um, that's something. Yeah, there are. There's very little aggression in the region that happens without Russia's tacit approval and or uh, their um, them sending to benefit. But I, I, I think that it's still interesting to discuss um, the reaction of people to it because when we, you know, I mentioned this briefly earlier, but. The fact that people are sort of interpreting it as this anti-Russian statement, I think it tells you a little bit that people are really looking for anti-Russian statements right now mm-hmm. um, in whatever capacity they can get them. And this is this isn't it like this really isn't it. And it's really scary to me that this might be interpreted as what decolonization is in our region. Like I that's very that's a scary that's a scary prospect that this is where that could go. Right. Um, but there is a conversation worth having about why are people so ready to jump on this? What, like, what, what is it that people are looking for that, you know, this very milquetoast freaking statement about how Tajikistan should have a bigger role in the oncoming Russian empire. Yeah. (laughs) Um, For real. You know, is met with 
sort of like, but he said this, you know. And it's interesting that you brought up the danger of misinterpretation. Dildor Bekova warns that misreading the speech, you know, including by characterizing it as a real challenge to Moscow, can be dangerous for the region because it could perpetuate investment in Tajikistan's oppressive regime by militarizing it right, in the hopes of shifting the balance Mm -hmm. of power in favor of the West, which is apparently what they did in response to Tajikistan being the only country in the region that didn't recognize the Taliban government. So that danger is real, especially in our part of the world where security is just so fragile. In Obscuristan overall, I think, you know, the value of listening to analysts and experts from the region who have the necessary context to understand what's actually happening is crucial. Yes, yeah, I mean, we see this all the time um, that the the voice of experts from outside the region is always valued a lot more. Um, but I'm glad that I'm, I'm I'm glad that she mentioned the like importance of uh, not misinterpreting the statement and not misattributing the statement because I mean, but you see this in decolonization fights worldwide, right? That decolonization is very easy to use as a tool for further oppression from you know local oligarchies, local dictatorships, local authoritarians. That's that is a real danger. And it's one that not only are we not immune to, but one that, you know, our part of the world has really fallen into in the past as well. But that being said, I also really don't want this to be a chance to say, well, so let's you know, we can't really talk about decolonization anyway, because we're just not there yet. We're still relying on Russia for security guarantees. Russia is still the major security guarantor in the region. Russia is still a power broker in the region because that's not really it either. Right. Because you're seeing that the reaction to the speech is that people actually want this conversation. They want a conversation about what it means to be independent from Russia, what it means to decouple from Russia, what it means to, mm-hmm. you know, build futures for themselves. Um, unfortunately, that like, w- well, while this speech might not be it. There's a real reckoning. Um, yes, there. Yes, the reckoning is still real. That's what that's that's exactly right. Even though what you know, what what this head of fucking state statement might be bullshit. The reckoning that people have people are having is real. Um and I think that's that's valuable, that's right? Where because it if is. people, yeah. yeah, do you think that there are um, leaders or narratives that are going to come up outside of you know the heads of like heads of state or authoritarian heads of state that are ultimately using this language mostly for their own benefit? Look, I mean, I'm I conceived of this episode really um, through watching Central Asians reckon with that colonial past and identity. Um, online. And it's been really amazing to see and very instructive to me personally as an Armenian. Um, and that's basically what what started this. It's just been really, you know, and also as someone, you know, my, my PhD was in um, Russian and East European studies. So mm-hmm. in the, those kinds of academic milieu, you are normally focused on Russia. And my department was um, distinct in a way because from the 1960s it was known as the department that sent PhD students beyond Moscow and St. Petersburg like they would go to Kazakhstan they would go to like rural parts of Russia so we were a little bit different but the way mm-hmm. Russia Russia um, the lens of Russia dominated everything that we learned was really real as well um, and so there's a Kyrgyz analyst named Erika Marat she's on Twitter and she was recently a guest on Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's Majlis podcast from September 14. The episode is called The Rise of Decolonial Thinking in Central Asia. And it was, you know, I really recommend listening to that if, if listeners um, want to check that out. But she said specifically, she said, Central Asians and Belarusians are similar in terms of how their cultures were erased by the Soviets and by Russian colonialism. 
And she said, and this is interesting, she said she doesn't notice that same kind of erasure among her friends from Baltic states or from the South Caucasus. Oh, interesting. I'm not sure I agree with that. Interesting. Like what? I mean, she was basically saying, especially in terms of language, um, that their language, that their languages in particular, but also culture was suppressed more than you know, and she's saying the Baltic states or the South Caucasus. Like, why Why don't you agree? I'm just curious. To be frank and fair, I don't I don't know very much about um, the suppression of Baltic culture, so I can't comment on that. And, you know, I also want to recognize that coming from the South Caucasus, obviously, I'm going to be prone to uh, noticing every moment sure. of cultural erasure. Sure, you're going to be quoted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm going to be real like there's going to be and it's going to it's, it's personal to me, obviously. So I'm going to find a lot of a lot more, you know, pain and outsized uh, impact on a lot of things. So that, uh, you know, it's worth laying that out there for people to to be aware of. Um, but yeah, I think that a lot of, I mean, a lot of um, Armenian and Georgian culture, while preserved, also was sort of fundamentally changed a little way, a little bit under Soviet rule. Like, for example, in music, you saw a lot of the push of, you know, European opera um, onto a lot of traditional folk music, which I'm not even saying is necessarily like, you know, in- inherently a terrible thing. Like, I, I I don't know how this is the second time I've mentioned this on this podcast, but I'm a big opera fan, so I'm not like pissed about it. <laughs> but it did, it did fundamentally sort of change like these kinds of things. And for example, the Armenian alphabet, the grammatical structure and the spelling structure was changed during the Soviet Union. And so the idea was that eventually they wanted to, they standardized the Eastern Armenian alphabet and they standardized Eastern Armenian spelling, which moved it away from, uh, you know, the old the Armenian. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What that did is that the the ultimate goal, as far as I remember, was to eventually move it to Cyrillic. And then Georgians and Armenians kind of aggressively protested and prevented that. But the permanent changes on language, on culture remained. And honestly, as someone who like, you know, is interested in folk music and studies, you know, and, and sort of learns about folk music on the side um, and also textiles, um, I have a lot of background in textile work. The cultural knowledge that was lost in terms of uh, folk art, folk music, textile work, sewing, traditional dress was pretty big. Like there is a massive, massive, massive gap that is really it's it's very when you start getting into this, it's very open and present. So when you see displays of Armenian culture nowadays, when you see displays of Georgian culture nowadays, when you see displays of uh, South Caucasus culture in general, a lot of it is portrayed through sort of a Soviet performance lens, which mm-hmm. is very different mm-hmm. from the way that culture was experienced before. Absolutely. But now that I'm saying this out loud, I also want to acknowledge that, like, you know, we still do have our language. So she probably makes a good point that, like, that suppression of language is it's extreme. Yeah. I mean, the fact that Armenians and Georgians have their language is huge for us. So can I can I just I found this so instructive. A sociology professor at Pitzer College in California named Azamat Junisbai wrote a thread opening by saying, quote, Russia's war against Ukraine has been deeply unsettling and has spurred much reflection about my own identity and my family's history. And I just want to read mm-hmm. a few tidbits from his thread because this is like on topic with what you were just saying, Anna. So just, you know, the highlights of of that long thread. Quote, I'm a middle-aged Kazakh man born and raised in Kazakhstan, yet my command of the Kazakh language is tenuous at best, and I have but a passing familiarity with Kazakh traditions and culture. Yet for much of my youth, this severed connection did not bother me. In fact, I was somewhat smug about it. Huh. 
And then he, he does some more tweets, which are really fascinating. So he continues saying, lately I've been increasingly circling back to the uncomfortable memory of contempt for most things Kazakh that I had felt growing up. I associated Kazakh language and culture with being rural and uncultured, low status. It's it's really familiar though. It is, I know, I know. Right? Okay. So he continues saying, it seems that Moscow's long rule in Central Asia extended far beyond political and economic control or even erasure of language and culture. I didn't just lose Kazakh language and culture. I learned to feel contempt for them, to be embarrassed by them. I suppose this is precisely what a thorough colonization is supposed to accomplish. Internalized racism is a term that comes to mind. Another is colonized conscience. I'm still trying to process this as I write, but it is clear that Ukraine's heroic struggle against Russian aggression and the clear and present danger of Kremlin's neo-imperial ambitions toward Kazakhstan have rejuvenated my own sense of Kazakh identity as nothing ever has. Maybe this is what the beginning of decolonization of consciousness feels like. Wow. Super That's powerful. Really powerful. I mean, yeah. just, yeah. But very familiar. Um, yeah. I don't know. Do you have this experience too? Because I've... I, I guess so I grew up in a Russian speaking household and so my um my first language wasn't Russian but it was my strongest language growing up it might I'm I, I'm not sure it is anymore but um it it still is the language you know it's the lingua franca at home it's what we speak I have to say like growing up going to Russian schools and um being in Russian communities I I can't lie like I developed a contempt for my own culture I think like there that's something I think it was probably it was maybe less prominent but there was an association of like, you know, some things that I consider very dear to me now. Uh, I, so I was kind of provincial and rural that like that. That's really that's familiar, man. I like I see that. It's interesting for me because I have a different background. So my family is from Iran, um, although my grandmother's from Russia, but she came to Iran when she was quite young. Um, mm -hmm. But similarly, there was an almost contempt for, you know, um, certain aspects of Armenian culture, um, even though yeah. living in Iran, it was a different relationship to the state and to the majority um, kind of, you know, hegemonic ethnic group that was there because the relations were quite good between um, yeah. Persians and Armenians. But there was still this sense that you needed to be kind of more cosmopolitan if you wanted to be respected or cool or you know get access to resources um because the armenian community was seen as kind of insular i mean it was and i think just by nature of those kind of social structures you're not going to have access to resources because you're going to be a little more closed um so so it's a different um relationship but but a lot of this i guess maybe growing up in california um as an armenian mm -hmm. or la where armenians are super visible um, in a negative way, you feel kind of contempt for your culture in another way. Yeah. But it's similar. Like what yeah. he's saying is just totally, I mean, I, I, I know what he's saying. Yeah. I mean, it, that's a, that's really what it is, right? That even if I can't draw exact parallels to the, you know, sort of particular ways in which internalized racism affected him, um, that the overall of like tone and the sort of like, emotional core of what he's saying does resonate like it, it felt it felt resonant um but i think it's but i will say the like this is definitely something that i think i'm beginning to come around to um to, to the point that you were saying that um erica marat made earlier because i'm beginning to understand the depths of how far 
um, that kind of oppression of culture must have gone in Tajikistan for people to be, you know, having this kind of reckoning now in this particular yeah. way. Yeah, because I'm not seeing the same kind of, you know, look, I'm seeing this search for identity without the colonial lens that the Central Asians are going through. And it must be such an uncomfortable and painful process, right? But also probably a necessary step in true independence from Russian power. Um, you know, we're, we don't exactly have, um, I think she mentions this in the in the podcast, you know, we're not going to have, you know, decolonial state leaders yet that are that are kind of pursuing more independent no, foreign policy. Yeah. I think it's valuable to look at the way that, you know, other countries in Eurasia and other people in Eurasia are grappling with decolonization because I'm not sure it's so much, you know, the extent of cultural suppression as to the um, the form that cultural suppression took maybe because, you know, things like being able to preserve language and things like being able to benefit from the Soviet education system and, con and you know, continuing to have that kind of benefit I think also played a large role in how countries like continue to self-actualize. And I really... I think that the language element for Armenians and Georgians in particular is probably huge because I didn't really even think about it until I like I recognized how not unique, but strong the ability to hold on to language was in Armenia and Georgia. So that I think probably played a large role. I do want to say that the fact that these conversations were happening at a high level and at a you know large public level in Ukraine so long ago and for so long because they were right like Ukraine this this conversation of like explicitly anti-Russian decolonization anti-imperialism has been going on in Ukraine for many years now mm -hmm. um, and at a at a much more you know like um, institutional level than I think either in the South Caucasus or in Central Asia and that really became an asset for them right we saw that. Uh, shape resistance. We saw that shape public opinion. I mean, and you know, let's be real, lots of things shape public opinion on Ukraine. But I don't want to downplay, you know, the role that the, the foundations that Ukrainian activists laid played in that. It's nice to see that have a ripple effect on the region. And it's nice to see people recognize the power of that kind of resistance. Whatever form that conversation ends up taking, I think that, you know, resistance in Ukraine is sort of spurring that across Eurasia. That's heartening at the least, because you know, cultural hegemony has existed in Eurasia for a long, long time. And, you know, you see it from like the most basic stupid level from like food and music and stuff like that. And I don't mean stupid. These things matter so much. They matter so much to me. <laughs> um, but you see that sort of you see it at the most basic level and you see it at the political level. And like seeing that rise to the political level is a huge deal. Yeah. Hopefully, I don't know. I'm I'm hopeful this is a trajectory versus, a you know, a sort of blip. I was just thinking about, you know, colonial vestiges. And I wanted to ask you what you think, um, what colonial vestiges is the South Caucasus region still grappling with right now, in your opinion? Well, energy policy is a huge one, right? Um, yeah, that's probably, you know, the fact that so much of, you know, energy in the South Caucasus is controlled by Russian companies. Infrastructure is a huge one. Um, it's, it's the day to day aspects of life, you know, these things are controlled by not just Russia, but like Russian technology, Russian infrastructure, Russian materials. Oh, my God. When I went to um, put the utilities in my house um, to my name, I was asking someone, okay, you know, so who's who's the gas company around here? Like, who, what what's my choice? And they're like, you don't have a choice. It's Gazprom Armenia. There's just the one. I'm like, okay. I, I knew yeah, that. I knew that. But I just fucking forgot about it. And like, I went to sign up and there's just this one. You have to go to the Gazprom Armenia office. So, and it's bad. I mean, they've shut the power off to hospitals before. That's happened. Like, super fun, super fun Russian yeah. state company. So it, 
it does go from you know all the way it it, it does run as deep as infrastructure and but you know I, I don't I don't want to downplay culture because cultural um cultural colonial vestiges also matter a lot like the arts the Ministry of Art in Armenia tends to fund is are very sort of um what, they have what very Soviet that? priorities like what well like you see for example um the popularity or not the popularity but the sort of emphasis on things like the opera house the ballet oh, like classical um, stuff. as a yeah yeah classical europeanized art which valuable awesome opera singers in armenia great stuff <laughs> but also you know at sort of the suffering of folk art and the like and, and, and even like that term like folk art right like you it almost feels like less refined which is so freaking depressing because these things connect you to your own people and actually i i i wanted to mention this um to like a, a direct parallel to decolonization, something that happened during uh, colonization in India, for example, Th there was uh, uh, there are some theories basically that one of the major effects of decolonization was economic stagnation in India, and one of the ways that that took form was the destruction of local methods of transferring knowledge. So basically, when you know British colonization happened by uh, divorce, like by dividing people from each other, by putting them into British schools and by destroying the local education systems and, you know, not putting effort funding and money into the local education systems and instead diver diverting all of that into the British system. When they then left, uh, what people were left with was a gap between them and their, you know, historical knowledge. For example, there were shipyards in India that were extremely um, successful pre-colonization and then that knowledge was sort of lost post-colonization. The textile industry in India, which, you know, now also really rocks, but um, the textile industry in India was one of the reasons it was the pressure and the competition from the textiles in the Indian continent or the Indian subcontinent uh, were one of the things that pushed Britain into their industrial revolution. And then post-colonization, there was a lot of rebuilding that had to happen in that industry because the, it, it had sort of been the local methods of production had had kind of I, I, they weren't lost, but there was reconstruction that had to happen of that. And that kind of knowledge matters a lot. So I don't want to downplay, you know, cultural and yeah. um, folk knowledge because that's tied to industry and that's tied to economics, too. One thing that really bothers me <laughs> in terms of colonial vestiges in Armenia is like how we in Armenia... I mean, that's that's who I can speak to, right? Because I, I live here and I'm Armenian. How or how and what we know about the rest of the world, right? Armenia knows yes. the rest of the world through the Rus Russian lens. I mean, this is slowly changing as the younger generation starts relying more on English as a second language. Um, and watches Netflix, honestly. And what, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, there's young people growing up now in Armenia who don't know Russian as a second language, but they do know English. I mean, that that that's a thing now. Um, yeah. But in terms of, you know, the literature, works of art, um, and what we're, you know, what we're kind of shown and told is significant in terms of like global creative production, artistic production, it's, it's, we never get the non-European, non-white people. Um, so yeah, we, we know very little about the rest of the world. Um, that's, that's the non-white, non-European world. Yeah, that actually is very, that's something that's extremely frustrating to me, because based on the region that Armenia finds itself in, you know, there should be connections to Central Asian countries, there should be connections to, you know, various indigenous groups across um, the Caucasus. 
And that connection is consistently and always only through Russia. I mean, I was seeing this where I was seeing these like freedom movements in, um, you know, various regions in Russia, like in Yakutia slash Sakha or um, in Dagestan, you see these like resistance movements and our connection to them is always through Russia. And they're oftentimes, you know, our connections to each other are through Russia. I, I think it's really important to unpack that and connect directly to each other because, you know, when you're connecting through Russia, you're connecting through the power broker and that that like avenue will always lead you to knowledge about each other that benefits the power broker. And that's uh, to the detriment of all the people in the region. But it's also to the detriment of, you know, your own history and your own culture, because that's not how you connected to each other historically. You had connections that were not Russian. That's incredibly it's not just frustrating to see, but I think it's damaging. And it's it's damaging to it's damaging to collective memory. It's damaging to economic development. It's a security issue and treating it like, you know, just this kind of like little cultural problem or like, oh, whatever, like who cares? It's it's not realistic because these things are like extremely interconnected and they create um, much bigger issues, the, like, you know, the deeper you get into them because you're narrowing your base of knowledge and you're narrowing your avenues to see the rest of the world and to see your own world, like the world literally immediately around you. Mm-hmm. You know what gives me hope though? I think hmm. without this reckoning, that we're going through um, to varying degrees, I don't think we would be able to have these conversations more broadly. Like us as Armenians speaking to Kazakhs, uh, Uzbeks talking to Georgians, etc. Like, I don't think we could have done that without this like very painful process of understanding how much we've lost and how much we've lost together to the same colonial imperial power. So yeah. my hope is that this process is like this necessary kind of, you know, the only way out is through kind of um, process that's like super difficult yeah. and, and you know, agonizing really is just kind of heart-wrenching and heartbreaking to understand how much of your own culture you've suppressed yourself, like as an individual, how much you've kind of pushed it down and like become a tool of that colonization. It's a painful thing to, to confront and reckon with. It's, it's awful. Um, but you know, it's nothing, you know, and and it's, it's violence really like, you know, getting, getting just kind of going back to what the, the Kazakh, um, was saying Azamat Junispai with the thread, um, the, the fact that his realization of his own role, you know, and kind of self colonizing his own mind or, you know, so to speak, that, that kind of colonized consciousness, um, and like how confronting that was so painful is just, it, it really, yeah, it's, it's. It's a hard thing to go through, but my hope is that it's through this that, you know, talking to one another in a more kind of mainstream way will become possible. Yeah, I agree. My hope is also that this process doesn't lead to us only looking inwards and backwards. So only looking into our own cultures and back into our own timelines, but that it also leads to actually looking outwards, not through Russia and really having communication between within the region um, because that is so genuinely important and valuable. And it's it's been suppressed for so long that it's very hard to imagine. And I honestly, I don't think we're there yet. Like I really, I don't think that it's happening enough um, and that- Oh, it's just begun, I think. Yeah, it's it's really like, it's, at, it's in the very, very, very early stages. And I'm really hopeful that it, it does arrive to the point where there is sort of a cross-regional reckoning as well. Um, because that kind of, you know, cross-regional solidarity would be extraordinarily powerful. But that, but I think that's honestly, I have to, be, I have to be honest. I think that's 
quite a long ways away, but it is very hopeful to see, you know, the beginning parts of that process in in different areas of, you know, where we are. So like with this, these conversations and kind of thinking about this more, I've literally just had this idea for the first time. Um, I mean, I've noticed this thing, but it's literally crystallizing now as a, a phenomenon that I'm noticing, um, which is that seeing other post-Soviet nations, and I say post-Soviet understanding that it's a colonial term, and I just want to frame it that way because that's what we're talking about. But when I see other post, post-Soviet peoples like Kazakhs talking about their relationship to colonization and how they see the world, I'm kind of understanding how big an impact Russian propaganda has been in just in the terms of um, assuming that everyone in the region is actually super conservative and um, traditional values oriented. And that's not to say that, you know, the majority of populations around this region don't think that way, but it was almost like a given and it's just how they are. That's how we are. And what that looks like, what those traditional values look like too, right? Like we have a very particular idea yes. of what those values are. And it's are. very common across the region. Um, yeah. And I'm wondering, I'm like, what? Maybe. How much know. of that is Russian propaganda? Like, obviously a lot of it yeah. was, but I thought maybe there's a lot of, you know, kind of authentic, organic, you know, bottom up kind of stuff feeding into that. But now I'm starting to question that. Like it's it's yeah. almost like the start of this this questioning is just making it all fall apart, and that is kind of amazing. Yeah, I I agree. I think that that's, I agree. It's very the deconstructive process is kind of it's a, you know it's hard. It's it's fun. you pull on the thread and it just all starts coming apart, and that's 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 just what's fascinating to me. And the fact that you know this episode started with. <laughs> supposedly dressing down Putin and like, you know, coming to the conclusion that no, he wasn't. Uh, he just wanted more goods. Um, but, you know, bringing yeah. us to, to this point in, in the conversation and the realizations that we made along the way is pretty something. So thanks. Thanks to Rahman for that. Yeah. Shout out, Rahman. <laughs> keep keep doing you, boo. <laughs> but um, Actually, no, don't. don't you yeah, seems to be oppressing quite a bit of people. Don't, don't do you. Don't. Maybe quit, maybe, actually. Maybe retire. There was, I, yeah. I just saw a video of him recently walking past a grove and he just stopped at a tree and picked a pomegranate and just kept walking. <laughs> maybe stay under the tree with the pomegranate. Enjoy the pomegranate. You don't need to. It's a good pomegranate. You need to go to work. <laughs> just, just sit under the tree and relax. You're an old Qu- man. Uh, hashtag Rahmon quiet quit. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's that's my vote. That's I'm I vote for Anna's vote. Um, that's that's <laughs> all I've got today, Anna. Um, thank you so much yeah. for joining me, and thanks to all our listeners for for coming with us to to this funny funny land of Obscuristan. Thank you so much for listening to Obscuristan. Join us next week for our next episode, and we hope you enjoy the trip. Bye bye.